Welcome to another Truth Factor discussion. The time every Wednesday where we sit down, so to speak, I'm standing up, and we study the Word of God. We factor the truth of God's Word into our lives and hopefully your life as well. Here in just a couple of moments, we will continue in our study through the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 18. Now, before we begin, and since Paul is not here, let me share with you how you can participate in today's study. We live stream this study through both our YouTube page, which is youtube.com slash truthfactorlive, uh, slash live is where we're actually streaming to. If you'd like to receive uh, future updates of our study, be sure to subscribe to our channel, click the little bell icon for future notifications. If you would rather follow us on Facebook or view the study there, you can do that as well. We are at facebook.com slash truthfactorlive. And you can, as I said, choose to follow us on that channel. If you want to send a message via uh, Twitter, our Twitter handle is Truth Factor Live. Very, of course, got to try and do a common branding there. Kind of make note of that. If you would like to email us, you can send the, que the questions or comments to questions at truthfactor.com. A little bit different. Questions at truthfactor.com. Again, thank you so much for joining our study today. Mr. Brian, tell us what we're going to be looking at today. Well, thank you very much for the introduction of our uh, times, John. We're in Acts chapter 18 this morning, so we want to invite you all to get your Bibles out, Acts chapter 18. Uh, we typically use the New King James Version for our study, so that's what we'll be reading from today. We're in the middle of Paul's, what we typically call his second missionary journey, his uh, second time in the book of Acts where he goes on an expedition to spread the gospel. He is in the region of Achaia, we would call that Greece today, and in the last chapter, we saw him in Athens, and today we're going to be exploring his work in Corinth, and ultimately that he's going to eventually go back home, and then, then we'll actually start a third trip uh, for us together. So we're going to start off this morning in Acts chapter 18, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. Um, Michael, I'm going to ask you if you would be willing, would you do the reading for us, uh, either the New King James or the King James, I believe, uh, is what you're going to have there. Um, and if you can read Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, I'm going to throw a question in our chat room for our chat to consider uh, answering for us this morning. Happy to do that, and I've gone ahead and, and uh, purchased a new King James so that I can keep up with you fellows. <laughs> After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed him, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, uh, hearing, believed and were immersed. Now the Lord spake to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate you reading that for us. Uh, we've thrown our chat question into the chat. The question is, what did Paul mean when he declared, your blood be upon your own heads? I am clean. So that's our, our first question uh, out to our general audience this morning. You got any thoughts about that? Uh, you can fill that in under Facebook or in YouTube chat or in uh, even in our uh, Truth Factor live chat. You can fill in there as well. Um, the first thing I throw out to our members this morning to think about, what do you know about the backstory that's mentioned in Verse 2, when Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla, there's a mention about Claudius commanding all the Jews to depart from Rome. 
Does anybody know anything about that? Have any uh, little tidbits to add to us about that? Uh, Brian, I, I got a couple things that I found on that. Um, looking through that, it seems that obviously, like we see, Claudius did expel the Jews. Uh, I think historians believe that to be somewhere right around 49 uh, AD, give or take a couple years. Uh, but some interesting stuff I found was how much this event actually proves the book of Acts as a real historical record from that time in that uh, there was a man named Suetonius that uh, was a historian of Rome. And uh, he he lived in the time of Emperor uh, Hadrian and, or Hadrian and uh, reigned, I think, somewhere between 117 and 138. Uh, and this historian wrote of this and said that it was because of the Jews uh, causing disorders that he did that. And even a letter from Claudius himself that stated that if they didn't follow his uh, rule, he was going to uh, take action against uh, against them for making trouble. Uh, so I found it interesting how this really proves the book of Acts as a true historical account. You know, something that actually is, a, is a, right where I was kind of hoping we might go to. Um, a lot of the documentation of this, some people weren't clear about uh, the, when the Bible mentioned it, but we do find later historians, actually non-Christian historians, and you mentioned Suetonius, and Suetonius is a great uh, historian for this kind of thing. Uh, one of the things Suetonius mentioned is he mentioned that the the Jews were, one of the reasons Claudius was upset was they were upset over the over uh, debates over over somebody called Crestus, and a lot of people speculate that that might be the early Roman version of the name of the word Christ. So, you know, what kind of adds to that is to suggest it could even be that this is early on the dissension uh, among the the Jews over the name of Christ, that it could be that's why they were all expelled from Rome. But but you're exactly right. This is one of those little tidbits that kind of gives the, the, the Bible its provability. And I really appreciate that you brought that out. Um, what do you guys think about the statement that Paul was a tent maker by occupation? You know, I thought I thought he was a preacher. What's the story here? How can you be both? Well, uh, uh, from time to time, Paul uh, had to support himself. That uh, that that's really the bottom line in what you're dealing with here. I mean, I mean. Uh, one of the things that preachers have to understand is when they when they uh, when you when you're going in, going into preaching, it should not be about the money, and and it, it it needs to be about the preaching of the gospel. And for some, that means uh, you may need to have an outside source of income that to to supplement your life, so that you can do what you need to do uh, as you preach the gospel. But of course, there's challenges to that, namely. If you're quote unquote making tents, and that's the expression we've given for uh, the expression we've given for uh, uh, preachers working outside or that are not fully supported or whatever, uh, it it takes away from your ability to fully do the work, or or maybe limits the amount that you can do. So, Tom, if you had somebody who was studying with you, uh, or you were you were trying to instruct somebody who was a preacher, what? you might use that word tent maker to be a tent maker. What would you be telling them? Uh, don't be afraid to get a job. You know, uh, uh, to give an illustration of this, uh, Randy Duvall, who is of no relation whatsoever to John Duvall, I don't think, uh, maybe back to Noah, but, 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 but regardless of that, uh, Randy Duvall has a preacher training program. That's a two year program up in, uh, in Missouri and so on. And, one of the things that he requires of all students is that they work at McDonald's in the morning, five days a week. He's got an arrangement with them and stuff like that. And his point is he wants preachers to under, to not be, not be above quote unquote making tents while they are out preaching the gospel. And, and, and they need that as a supplement for their income while they're in the program. So, you know, just to survive. With the day to day, they go preach on weekends, but it's typically not enough just to to pay your expenses. So you find a way to make some money to to, to be able to live. That's a, that's a real important comment there, Tom. And I appreciate the fact that you took you took this scripture and you were able to to make a more practical application out of it. John, do you happen to have any thoughts on this? 
Brian, I think it's important to point out that preaching is not a trade and it's not an occupation for all intents and purposes. Um, now, preachers are supported by the gospel, but Paul Paul's trade was a tent maker. Um, he he uh, was a very devout Jew initially. He's a very extremely faithful Christian, and his role was to proclaim the gospel. And sometimes he could be supported by the gospel. Uh, Galatians 6 talks about that, 1 Corinthians 9. Other times he could not, but he was always a trade there that he had in his had at his disposal or his access to be able to work and make tents. And so I think sometimes, I think too often in our modern day culture, preaching is viewed as an occupation. Think about with an occupation, you earn money. With preaching, I know a labor is worthy of his hire, but preaching, you don't really, you can't say, Hey, I've, I've done these great many things and I've baptized more people. And so I need a raise and I deserve the raise. You know, it, it needs to be looked at as a role within the church, a work for the Lord, and not an occupation. Um, and if you can live in the gospel by itself, then that's wonderful. But young preachers need to know, and Shelton and I have talked about this, that there's nothing wrong with working secularly, having a trade, getting a trade. Although some would discourage that. But if you get a trade, then it could help you. In, in your life as a preacher. John, that's a, that's a fantastic comment. Um, one that I think a lot of times people, uh, especially if you're a new convert, you don't appreciate that idea because in the world there is a vocation, there is a occupation, uh, you know, a career choice like this. And, and it's good to understand that the preacher is a work of the church, like elder, like deacon. And you're exactly right that, uh, uh, that, that idea of a, of a career path really isn't the same thought or process. Although many preachers do spend their entire life doing it. Uh, you're right, though. It, it really can't be considered in the same way. I like your pun, by the way, that a preacher is not a vocation for all intents and purposes. So that was well I wish they'd been intentional. Yeah, <laughs> intentional. Yeah. Uh, let's see if Mike's got any comments on this. It just, a, just a bit to add to John's good thoughts. Jesus said that uh, to his apostles when he first sent them out, freely have received, freely give. Lord provided every provision for those men who initially started preaching the gospel. Then he added the 70, and the Lord added to those provisions. Well, in our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, he says plainly at verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. It's interesting that we gospel preachers who have committed our lives to that, to that work uh, and again, I agree with John, it's not an, accu uh, an occupation, it is a vocation. It is that by which we live rather than that by which we make our living. Uh, we, we are entirely blessed. We're, we're, we're extremely blessed that we work with churches that have things to support us or other churches are willing to supplement that support force and keep us from, as we studied earlier, serving tables. But the point is, we ought not be afraid of getting our hands dirty. If if we can't work with our minds, then you got to make a living with your hands because we got families to support, and that's that's the obligation there. I I've often said it, and I'm sure that all of you brethren will agree with me. I would preach for absolutely nothing if that's what's needed, but I refuse to stop preaching. That's the point. That's a fantastic comment, Mike. Uh, I don't know what, what could be added to that. That's a really good point. Uh, I do see we have a chat comment from Gregor in our YouTube chat that if uh, we can bring up. Gregor made the comment, preaching, an avocation versus an occupation. It is what we are all asked to do in some form, share the word as best we can. Uh, Gregor made a couple of great points there. Uh, first of all, he really, really is grabbing the idea that preaching is something that we're dedicated to doing versus we do in order to receive a paycheck. I had to look up the word avocation there, by the way, to make sure I understood what Gregor was saying. So I appreciate that too. Um, but, but the idea is it's actually something we're all supposed to be about. Every, every, the, the, one of the purposes of the church, uh, Ephesians chapter four, uh, verses 11, 12, 13 says that it's to create people that can go out and spread the word of God. So it's something we're all supposed to be about. It's a terrible thing to think only the preacher does the work of evangelism. A church like that won't grow. So uh, some fantastic points. Um, I'm going to jump ahead to our next question. 
which is about the synagogue, uh, the uh, the synagogue work here. You notice that Paul was, of course, going to the synagogue, uh, verse 4 says, every Sabbath. There are some today that look at this and say that there is an, an example, an authorized example, that we are to meet on the Sabbath being Saturday, the last day of the week, uh, to meet on Saturday instead of Sunday. Anybody have a thought about that? Or if somebody said that to you, is would you agree with them? That's evidence. The synagogue was only a place of gathering for the Jews, and it made a great spot for Paul to have a beginning stage to introduce the gospel. The New Testament, and we've already examined that in some of our studies, the New Testament shows clearly that the first day of the week is the Lord's Day, and that's when they were to take communion. We've looked at that in the 17th chapter, and uh, that's the day uh, that we are to lay by in store, 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 1 and 2. Um, it, it, the, the only advantage to starting in the synagogue was it gave Paul a starting place to discuss the gospel with listening souls. Mike, those are exactly the two answers I wanted to hear. I appreciate that. First of all, <laughs> Mike, you made the point to say the synagogue, um, frankly, really wasn't the place of worship. We know the temple in Jerusalem was no. the place the Jews worshipped. It was a place where they gathered, and effectively, it was a place where they gathered to study the scriptures. And uh, so so we want to understand, first and foremost, that, that they might not have even seen this as a place of worship, even though today that's a little different. But secondly, more importantly, we are giving other places in the New Testament where we are shown, without a question, that the New Testament church met on the first day of the week in order to offer worship. So those are the answers that we would give to somebody who tried to say that this was an example of that. Uh, Mike, you gave them both, and you gave them perfectly. Appreciate that. In fact, we'll just we'll just go ahead and move to the next question. Um, so we see as we move through here, we saw that uh, Sil- verse five says Silas and Timothy came. Um, so what changed when they showed up? You know, uh, something interesting as you pop that out. I know that this is theory. Uh, uh, is in Philippians chapter four. Paul talks about how on more than one occasion the Philippians were the only ones that supported Paul. He will later on in 2 Corinthians, uh, writing letters to the Corinthians, he will talk about his support. Matter of fact, he talks about it in 1 Corinthians as well as in 2 Corinthians where he said there, I robbed other churches taking wages of them, 2 Corinthians 8 uh, or or 9. And and, uh, the point is... Very likely, because Timothy and Silas came from Macedonia, they might have brought support from Philippi. And because Paul was now able to be supported to preach the gospel, he was able to stop making tents for a while. That's just a thought. Tom, that's a fantastic thought. Um, it's one of those thoughts that, uh, as you said, it's uh, we're not exactly expressly told that, but the... The facts all seem to line up to to make that a very likely scenario for what's going on here. Uh, that, as you said, the church in Philippi is is a church that supports him to do the work of preaching, and that his uh, uh, it's important to understand that as a tent maker, he wasn't able to fully dedicate himself until they came. Anybody have any other thoughts about that? It could have also been Brian, and and this is of course an assumption as well, but. Uh, we, we know that he was afraid in verse 9 of some kind or being encouraged because he was afraid uh, that he might be attacked, I guess. And, and I don't, I'm not sure if that was a fear that he um, submitted himself to or whether that was just encouragement for him to continue uh, to defeat that fear. But it could have been also that now Paul has more brethren around him. He had Aquila and Priscilla and, uh, and everything, but it could be that he was encouraged and strengthened by their arrival, that uh, that now he has kind of uh, some backup, if you will, and and was able to do that. Uh, the other thing I thought was also that it says he was compelled by the Spirit. It could have simply been the Holy Spirit working through him by inspiration that caused him to do it. Then, you know, you know, uh, Shelton. One of the things I was thinking about is, as you said, uh, here being in Corinth, being almost all alone, uh, it would be really. Uh, I could understand the fear of that, what it would be, and and how how having two more equipped, faithful brethren to support me in that work would would really change my ability to go forth. That very thought crossed my mind, too. I appreciate that. Um, 
Let's go to question number five, um, or what we call number five. Nobody else gets to see that, so I guess I shouldn't throw the numbers out there, but uh, the questions we kind of prepare ahead of time. So in verse eight, it says that Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. Uh, then in verse 17, it mentions another person, Sosthenes, uh, as a ruler of the synagogue. Anybody have any thoughts on what those two statements could mean? And, and I don't think there's just one answer to this. I think there's several different thoughts. But if somebody said, well, here's a contradiction in the Bible, what what kind of things might you put out there to say that, that in fact, that's not what this is? Anybody have a thought? Well, Brian, when, when I was looking through Crispus, and I, I didn't know much about him at all uh, and hadn't looked at this passage very much, but yesterday uh, did some studying on him. And it seems that in 1 Corinthians 1, you know, in 14, when Paul's talking about how he is uh, pleased that he only baptized, you know, the two of them that were there and, and because they were having issues, one of the names he mentions there is Crispus. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the same Crispus or not. I assume that, that maybe it is. Uh, but being ruler of the synagogue, we know that he it, believed in the passage that we read here. He believed and uh, was uh, somebody who... Um, would have been would have been baptized like first corinthians 1 verse 14 said uh so if that were the case he wouldn't have had you know much association then with the practices that went on in the synagogue of uh keeping the old law uh, he would have been one that now has been converted to christ and therefore uh i i suspect that that's why we see Sosthenes being the new uh, leader of the synagogue is because crispus was converted he wouldn't have been seen fit anymore for that position so, uh, so that's a fantastic answer, actually. In fact, that's probably, uh, I would suggest, probably the most likely scenario is that it, it looks really clear th that with Crispus' conversion, you're kind of wondering how could he remain the head of the synagogue. It's one of those little, as I said, little trivial points that kind of, again, uh, flows in the logic of what we're reading that kind of says, hey, this is a real thing. This really happened like this. Because how how would he have remained the leader of the synagogue if he had converted to Christ? So necessarily we would see that there was another leader there. So that's that's a very obvious uh, or not obvious, but a very clear logical point that's worth considering too. Um, anybody else have a thought about that? Uh, yeah, like you like you said. I mean, there's multiple possibilities. Uh, there's nothing that says that if I understand correctly, there's nothing that says there can only be one ruler too. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, you know, just like in a church, uh, elders always have to be a plurality. You know, I mean, it, it, it could be that you have several leaders, even though it uses the word ruler. Yeah. You can have the idea of several who had authority. So, yeah, yeah. You know, we I really don't know. And, and that was one of the things that occurred to me. The other occurrence was there might be more than one synagogue in town, too. Um, oh, yeah. Both of those are things that occurred to me as well. I really like the, you know, the conversion of Crispus likely removing him i think that would that would be a very logical one that's my favorite but uh yeah that there could have been more than one ruler of the synagogue and there could have been more than one synagogue are also very very likely scenarios here so certainly no contradiction not that any of us thought there was exactly and like you i i lean toward what uh sheldon was talking about i think that that's the most plausible is yeah. i mean because i mean this was a this was obviously became a somewhat hostile synagogue yeah. You know, not I and, and I say that because not every synagogue was necessarily hostile when Paul came in un, until the Jews came along, you know, or until people came along and stirred it up. You know, you talk about the Bereans being more noble minded than those in Thessalonica. They received Paul. There wasn't a problem staying, you know, dealing with the synagogue until the hostile Jews came. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'd like to say more about that, Tom. I think there's a very interesting study about the transformation of the synagogue because of Christianity by the end of the first century. Uh, we just don't have time to go into that. In fact, in fact, really what we need to do now is move back to our chat question, if we can. Um, I see we do have one answer to our chat question that was uh, in our YouTube discussion. Again, the question was, jumping back there, what did Paul mean when he declared, your blood be upon your own head, I am clean? And our answer there is from Gregor. Appreciate Gregor's uh, throwing a thought in there. Gregor said... Blood is often a euphemism for blame. So though Paul was able to preach to the world, Paul puts the responsibility for their salvation on them since they were not receptive. In other words, they're, they're, they're guilty of this. Kind of an important point for us to consider. Lots of times people don't want to hear what we have to say. Um, the blame's on them. 
you know, that that's an important thing to consider. Uh, we're not responsible because somebody wouldn't listen to what we have to say. Uh, some important points to consider in that. Let's move on then. Uh, let's go to uh, Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 17. And we're going to talk about Paul being brought to trial before Gallio. Um, had Mike read last time. So, Tom, I want to ask you if you would read Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 17. Okay, so we have here, it makes the point that when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names of your law, own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to judge, be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, I'm throwing up a chat question here real quickly to our chat rooms. And the question is about Gallio. Did Gallio accurately understand the debate? Or maybe I should have worded that to say, did he accurately understand what, what the issue was that the Jews were trying to answer? Um, just a, more of a thought question to get your opinions and see what you think about this. If you have any thoughts you might observe in that question. So if you've got any thoughts about that, do you think Gallio understood what was being brought before him or not? Do you think he understood what, what the Jews were trying to accuse Paul of or not? Um, and maybe some thoughts about that. Um, I want to start off with just a little bit of a background about this man, Gallio. And we actually have a picture of an inscription that Gallio made while he was in the position that he was uh, mentioned here, that when he was the proconsul of Achaia. Um, I've asked uh, John if he would to throw that picture up real quickly. Uh, here's a Greek inscription. Um, it's kind of an interesting point. Uh, I know a couple of you did a little bit of background work about this. Anybody have any uh, observations why this is kind of significant for us to know? I think, Shelton, you, you, you mentioned a comment off air, and I, what, you did a little work on this. Can you throw us some thoughts on it? Uh, yeah, and I, I didn't find much, but uh, I did understand what, you know, and we you were discussing it a little bit before we went live on air about that, but uh, the historical significance of Gallio, uh, like you had said, some have used Gallio as someone, because we don't have any historical record of him as the Bible being, uh, not historically accurate, and especially the account of Acts uh, not being accurate here. But when we found those stones with the inscription there, uh, and you said it was somewhere around the 20th century, I believe it was, uh, gave us, you know, proof that not only Acts was historically accurate, but that uh, obviously the writer of this text had to have been someone who was an eyewitness account uh, of of what had happened here because it wasn't written down. Uh, historically by uh, extra-biblical sources. Uh, it's a great comment, Shelton. We had talked about this a little bit beforehand, that this inscription is actually fairly significant for us. Uh, I mean, first thought, you might think it's not, you know, it's not too important. It's not something more than just a, another stone with the Bible name. But in this case, it actually, um, with the absence of all other information, the Bible was the only testimony of Galileo for a long time. And so a lot of people rejected it. But when that stone was found, it demonstrated the idea that, that the stone must actually have been, or that the account written in Acts was actually written by an eyewitness who would have known that. Um, anybody else have any thoughts about that, uh, about what we use this stone for from a biblical understanding yeah, you point? Know, you know, Brian, just real, real quickly, uh, uh, critics today, and, and this has been true for centuries probably, they look at things that are that are in the Bible that cannot be proven historically. And I don't, I don't know where they get this, but if there's one name, either a city or a person, that you don't have a historical documentation, that somehow invalidates the entire Bible. But that just comes from an attitude of somebody that does not want to accept what Scripture says or even to consider it. But we just continue to have more and more discoveries, and every time we get a discovery, it verifies more about the Bible 
nothing disproves the Bible historically. That a great comment, Tom. Um, that that anybody who believes that an absence of evidence is evidence of absence, so to speak, uh, yeah. is intentionally not wanting to believe that that's the that there's that's never been a logical consistency in how we look at uh, uh, determining if things are true or not. So, Tom, that's a fantastic comment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Silence is not, silence is not proof. Right, right, right. Period. Brian, there's, yeah. there's something else about this inscription. They have found that the, that this uh, Gallio uh, was proconsul of Achaia from 51 to 52 AD. And so it helps them to place Paul's 18-month stay in Corinth, maybe from the fall of 50 on into 52. It really helps to increase the accuracy of our understanding of the timeline. So what does this do for the timeline of Acts in general then, John? I think it helps to kind of of solidify it. Um, Yeah. Like there are several, there are several events in the Old Testament that um, scholars are able to pretty accurately place. Once you have those fixed points, then you can go backwards and forwards based on what the Bible then records. Same thing here. If we have a couple of fixed points in the book of Acts, then studying through Acts and taking the various times given, it helps us to have a more accurate understanding of when these things take place. John, what you're saying is so important. Um, the Bible doesn't actually give us facts, uh, gives us a chronology in our terms of, of dates for us to understand. And that's, right. it just doesn't, it's not interested in doing that. But we always want to know when, you know, we always want to kind of place things in time. It helps us to, to have an understanding of how things relate to us. And this, this actual, this moment in this inscription actually gives us the kind of puts a tack in the book of Acts for us in a right. moment so that, as you said, we can then extrapolate the, the remaining events. Um, so let me throw this out in general, guys. What what was the crime that the Jews accused Paul of? What was his crime that they brought him before the judgment seat? He dared to preach Christ crucified. The Jews still have it in their mind that their only salvation is somehow through Moses. And yet Moses was the one that said, God would raise up a prophet like me, and from your kindred to him shall you hearken. You you listen to him. When Jesus came, he fulfilled all those prophecies. The Jews simply didn't want to accept it because he did not come as the king should have come in their mind to die on the cross, to be buried, to be raised from the dead, became an interesting facet to these unbelieving Jews. But that same interesting facet was the absolute proof that Jesus is the Son of God, and that's what caused many more to obey the gospel. They're, they're just like Paul, who had gone through this in his own experience. They're kicking against the pricks. That's a, a, great, a great observation there about what, what is at the heart of their issue. Tom, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, uh, it, it's kind of interesting. The way that it's worded in Scripture, uh, this fellow persuades men to worship contrary or worship God contrary to the law. What law? Uh, are we talking the law of Moses, which the Jews would have meant, or are we talking the laws of Rome, which would have been the significance of the Corinthians? Because the Romans did have some laws about gods. They were they were indifferent for the most part about you worshiping whoever, as long as you also worship their gods. But the way that it's worded is like one of these loaded questions, or, or it could be deceitful in a sense. And uh, Gallio has nothing of it. Uh, he he catches them in what they're saying. Uh, so Tom, actually, that's a that's a really um, a, a really significant point there. Um, um, that uh, that there's a there's a real dilemma here about what the question of the law is because it doesn't say. And you're right about the fact that the Roman law is a little bit uh, it's kind of weird on this. And, and one of the aspects of the Roman law was the Roman law was you couldn't start a new religion. By the way, we're going to see that more and more importantly as the book of Acts proceeds on, that the, the Jews wise up to what they can and can't accuse Christians of. And we're going to see how that gets manipulated as we proceed through Acts. Tom, you actually said something really important that all of our listeners ought to put a put a plug in and think about what you said there, because that's going to actually be really important. And the reason is what we're about to see. I see we got some chat uh, comments here. Um, 
oh, I'm sorry. I mean, actually, these kind of uh, these kind of go back to our, our actually our chat questions. So never mind. I'm sorry. I, I misread those. I thought they were comments to our conversation. Uh, we'll hold off on those just a second. Um, let me kind of step back then and, and uh, go back to uh, the question. Uh, another thought then. Um, whenever whenever Galio kind of throws this case out, which as you said, you know, Galio seems to have picked up or at least understand some thoughts about this. So when Galio realizes what's going on, he throws the case out. It's really interesting. It says the Greeks did what? They what beat Sosthenes. Yeah, so they beat Sosthenes, the ruler of the of the synagogue. Um, you know, I, I don't. I, I so I always kind of smirk when I read this because, I, to me, what on earth just happened? Um, it's kind of a strange thing. What? What on earth did you? You know, we brought this case to trial, and we would kind of assume Sosthenes, if he's, you know. Uh, he's probably not the guy, by the way, mentioned in First Corinthians chapter one, verse one. There's a sauce that he's mentioned there. Doesn't sound likely that that's the same guy because this that sauce that he's would have been in Ephesus, so probably a different guy. So this sauce that he's probably one of the guys that brought the trial up. So I, I kind of like a court system. Well, actually, anybody have any thoughts on that before I throw a little irony out there? But anybody have you any know, thoughts on that? You know what? I I I kind of wonder if Sosthenes was a pain in the side of the Greeks in this city. You know, well, I, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Tom, uh, Galio say that kind of makes you think that. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, uh, well, you know, he makes the point, you know, about your law and so on. Um, yeah, you know, if we're a matter of wrong, the very last thing he says so is, why do, should I have to bear with you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and what, and, and when he pays no attention to them beating the tar out of Sosthenes, I mean, I mean, we've already talked about the second quote unquote ruler of the synagogue. It, it almost seems that. Uh, uh, it almost seems that, uh, was it Jason? You know, he, he's not a troublemaker. Sosthenes is somebody stirring things up. And so I suspect this probably was not the first time, even though we're not told that. So, anyway. uh, so oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, that's it. Oh. John, did you have a comment? I'm sorry. No, no. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I thought I, I thought I heard you coming in there for a second. Um, I do see uh, that Gregor had a, a bit of a comment here about one of the things we said we can bring in uh, here. All righty. Gregor made an observation about uh, uh, did Paul actually break the law of Moses by preaching Christ? Given the proof uh, came from the law as it was, I'm not convinced. Why would Galileo allow them to beat Sosthenes? I'm not sure. So, uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting observation. Um, was was Paul breaking the law? Absolutely not. You know, he wasn't breaking the law of Moses. He was he was he was preaching the fulfillment of the law of Moses, the ultimate uh, the ultimate part of the law of Moses. So Gregor is exactly right. And you know, with as far as the beating of Sosthenes, um, again, it, it there's just not a lot of uh, it's just a really bizarre. It's a little bizarre tidbit there. And, and all I can say is, can you imagine having a legal system where if you bring up a case before the judge and the judge says this is you know, I'm going to case dismiss. This is ridiculous. But then they take the guy that brought it out and beat him up. What kind of law system we might have? It might be a better one. I don't know. I, well, Brian, let me let me add another tidbit here that that's uh, seemingly apparent. At least it is to me. Isn't it odd that the Jews purposely pit the law of the Romans against the law of Moses in order in order to attempt a justification of their actions? They did that with Christ. They said to Pilate, we can't kill him, but you can. So they, they prompted both laws in a, in a blending that really wouldn't blend. And now they're trying to do the same thing. But the interesting thing here is when the Jews got angry and beat somebody up, we almost expect that because they're defending the law of Moses. Here you got Gentiles, Greeks, beating up on a fellow. What profit is there in beating up somebody just because you don't agree with them? The Gospels supersede any of this anyway. You know, they're, they're acting like folks in the 21st century, and that's kind of ironic, I think. John, do you have any thoughts? Are you You're muted? muted You're muted, John. You sound good, but you're. Go ahead. <laughs> How about now? I, I can read lips, but you're not going to like what I have to say. Is it better? Yeah. So, yeah. what if they beat Sosthenes because he's the one that they would blame for letting Paul teach in the synagogue? 
You know, when Paul first got there, he would have gone to the synagogue. He would have spoken this message about Christ. Well, he went on teaching, and they tried to bring, you know, charges against him. And Gallio says, you know, this isn't my problem. You deal with this yourself. And so they ended up beating the one that permitted Paul to speak in the synagogue, possibly. So, so that would be interesting because that might imply the idea that these Greeks uh, just thought that Sosthenes might have just, you know, wasn't keeping Paul under control. That's an interesting observation. Like I said, it's so unusual that we have to consider a couple of different possibilities. Well, I, I, for Brian, please make a clarification well, for us because I'm confused. Me too. Greeks, Gentiles, or are these Jews that speak Greek? Now, that, what a great question. So, so, you know, it's interesting. Translations don't always render that the same way. The New American Standard just says they. Um, yeah. and, I, and it's not clear who the they are. Now, here the Greeks, um, uh, in the book of Acts, there's a lot of times where, where when, when, when uh, uh, I'm sorry, I just got the writer of Acts, Luke, uses the word Greeks, he actually means the Greek Jews. We see that way back in Acts yeah. chapter 6, places like that. So, you know, it's it's just not exactly clear, for, even from the context, it's not 100% clear to me. And, and like I said, maybe somebody has a better thought about this. I would suggest, though, I, I'd entertain that it could be either. And uh, if somebody has a thought that might kind of lead which way that might go. Well, what about verse 12? Sorry, I didn't bring that the Jews were the ones that brought him. That they are yeah. called Greeks there, or that they were the ones that brought him. What do you? It think? just says the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. It looks like the Jews brought him to the judgment seat, and they began to charge him. And Gallio says, "No, I won't hear it. Judge it yourselves." And so the Jew, that the group of Jews, took out Sosthenes <laughs> and beat him. Well, you know, it's interesting from the, from the New American Standard, uh, that would actually be your conclusion, because as I said, it, it doesn't actually mention um, the Greeks. It just says they took hold of them and beat him. Um, you know, that it, it doesn't actually tell us who they are, and you would, you would presume that they would be the Jews, actually. I so, understand what you're saying. Uh, Based on the New American Standard translation. How, how do you spell it? Is what you said. No, no, but based on the New American Standard translation. Or verse 12 yeah. is what you're talking about. Yeah, and that's it. Looks, it. That, well, I reverse, uh, I'm sorry, I just lost my place here looking at this. Uh, verse uh, 17, where it doesn't, in the New American Standard, verse 17 doesn't use the word Greeks. It, it just says they, and the they would necessarily, or maybe not necessarily, but likely be the Jews. So like I said, it would depend on your translation. Yeah, probably so. Going back up to verse 12, I would think that the um, the they would refer to the Jews who brought brought Paul forward. Just a thought. Whatever it is, uh, True Factor can't answer all the great questions of the Bible. Uh, we can only sometimes point out the great mysteries. I'm not sure. I think Tom, uh, for the sake of time, Tom, I'm going to actually, uh, Tom had a thought that he said because there would be Greeks around, it might be more likely to be Greeks. Again, I think there's a lot of, uh, uh, I think it could be either one. I think it's interesting, regardless, that, you know, it, it kind of brings up a, a bit, and I had a few more thoughts about it, but we'll just have to move on for the sake of time. I do want to make sure, though, we go back to our chat, because I see we've got a several different answers to our chat questions. So if we can go back to the chat and bring those up. Okay, here was the so question. So our question was, did Galio accurately understand the debate? And that was kind of a loaded question. You could have gone a couple of different directions with this. So our first answer there, let's pull up, is from Grant Haynes. Galio seems to think that Christians are simply a new type of Jew, like the Pharisees or Sadducees, probably because they believed in the same God and had the same written scriptures. Um, what's interesting about what Grant says there is that, is that that's, that seems to be consistent in several places. A lot of people think that's why Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome, is that he didn't really have a sense of the distinction between those who were with Christ and those who weren't, and there was a dissension there, and he might have expelled all the Jews, not seeing a difference. And that seems to be, um, uh, that seems to be how the Romans looked at Christianity Right up, and, he, and here's a neat thing that we're moving towards, by the way. Right up until somebody showed up and explained to the Roman emperor the distinction between Christianity and the law of Moses. Now, history doesn't tell us anything about who that might have been, but the book of Acts will. So that's kind of a spoiler alert, I guess, if you want to say. 
where we're headed with the Book of Acts. That uh, it's something that the Book of Acts is going to uh, to be the only thing in the world that reveals that information to us that makes us understand that at some critical moment, the Romans suddenly realized there was a distinction between the Christian and the Jew. Of course, that ultimately is going to end with or uh, result with the persecution of Christians by the Romans. So interesting thought, uh, again, about the veracity of the book of Acts, how we're going with that. Um, so our second, uh, our second, I'm sorry, uh, our second point there was Gregor Hinckley. Gregor's answer is just very simple. He says, yes. After the Jews. Hey, Shelton, pick up and hang up. Picking <laughs> up verse 19 again. And he came to Ephesus and let them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Verse 22, And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Figra in order, strengthening all the disciples. So we did get a notice uh, that our YouTube streaming is down, or um, YouTube and Facebook, it looks like. Well, it, so, we, we had a hiccup for a moment, but it's back to good to go red. Yeah, they're back okay. on. So we are back on. Okay. I just got a message myself offline that we were off, but okay. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, John, with that. Uh, throwing up a chat question then while we uh, uh, while we make sure everybody gets back on. Does anybody need to refresh? No, I don't or think so. Be okay. okay, Gregor Gregor says we're back on, so we're all back good. So our, our chat question we're throwing out there is why was Paul in a rush to return to Jerusalem? And then kind of a second note, does it say that he actually went to Jerusalem? That's a, a thought question. Maybe not as easy to answer as you might at first think just looking at that. So hopefully I'll give you a little time to think about that question and what it says happened there. So here's a question for you. It says that Paul, uh, first thing he did was he uh, cut off his hair a century after he had taken a vow. What vow do you think he was taking? What what pops into your mind about that? Well, uh, Brian, in Numbers chapter 6, for a lengthy part of the first part of that chapter there, the shaving of the head in, in connection with the vow uh, would have been most likely the Nazarite vow that's talked about there. Um, and, you know, the Bible doesn't really record why he chose uh, to follow that Jewish practice necessarily, other than that he was going to Jerusalem for a feast. Uh, Paul being someone who in 1 Corinthians 9 talked about becoming all things to all men, uh, even becoming a Jew to the Jews that he might reach them. Uh, you know, that's important to notice here in this. That, that's what he's doing. Uh, it wasn't that, you know, he thought that this vow was binding because it was a mosaical uh, uh, vow that we read about there. But not that he thought that he had to take this vow or shave his head, but it would have provided him uh, with an opportunity uh, for him to talk to his brethren because the Jews already think of Paul as, you know, one of their brethren that fell away, if you would, uh, and, and for participating in this vow that wouldn't have gone against um Christ, you know, and his law, it, it might have given him an opportunity. But uh, we do know one more thing, and, and I'll get out so we, for sake of time, but we do know that he couldn't have followed everything about this vow. Chances are it would have just been the appearances of it, uh, because in that vow, we know that he would have had to abstain from any grape products, and come the first day of the week, he would have partaken of the Lord's Supper. And uh, so, you know, chances are this is just him practicing the shaving of his head for the vow that he might have a better chance to speak with them. I'd never thought of that, uh, Shelton. That's really neat. Uh, it, it hadn't even clicked in my mind that that, that whole vow, he would not have been able to have abstained uh, in, in for everything there. Never thought about that. I appreciate that. So, yeah, I appreciate you, you let everybody know that they can read more about that vow in Numbers chapter 6, that it seems to be the Nazarite vow. Um, and, and we're actually going to see this vow again in Acts chapter 21. It's going to come back to us one more time, so it's good to kind of know it now and to see what's going to happen now. Shelton, I think you gave the best answer I've heard about this because what you said was that that this is Paul, an example of Paul being all things to all men, that he's going to go back to Jerusalem, and this vow gives him the ability to, to speak to the Jews, especially Jews who maybe not are, you know, haven't become believers of Christ yet, and that's going to be an important idea for Paul to consider. Um, 
Any thoughts or comments uh, Brian, you want to throw out there about that? I won't throw one out. I just want to keep this in our, pri our chat privately, but it seems like such a profound idea. I thought I would share it with everybody. Now, like you go duck hunting, just feel free to shoot it down. Now, th this may not be uh, a, a, an accurate answer because it is referred to as a vow. But I wonder, Paul had spent a lot of time with the Gentiles. And since he was heading to Jerusalem and would therefore then be going probably to the temple, I wonder if the shaving of the hair was part of a cleansing process, you know, in order to be able to go and be, be ceremonially cleansed and consecrated by the, the Jews or viewed that way. You know, you know, that's really interesting because in Acts chapter 11, whenever Peter came back from Cornelius, there are a lot of Christians who are Jews who are offended because he'd been with these Gentiles. And there still might have been some uh, some feeling that you were with the Gentiles, you're unclean, you've been around them enough. Um, and I, I wonder, uh, John, I mean, I, it does say vow. I mean, I'd probably stick with that originally, but I've never thought of it that way. And certainly, I think you're right in the sense that there, there's some example in the scripture that, that, that the idea that Gentiles could rub off on you to a degree, that, you know, there was some concern about that. And, and that even some brethren were kind of confused about that. And I think under certain times under the Mosaical law, under certain conditions, wouldn't one have to shave in order to be considered ceremonial clean? Well, this is where we need Wayne uh, with us. He's really good about answering questions like that. And I was thinking that if you had a rash yes. or skin ailments, you had to shave your head. But, yeah. Yeah. but now I yeah. just don't remember. Yeah, I was going to say the answer to that is uh, cleansing from leprosy, spots, uh, impurities and so on. That was a part of the process of shaving all your hair off. So, so hmm. that was a part of the cleansing, and and that that's in Leviticus. So. But the term vow, though, like y'all said, does tend to direct, at least the one we know about, is the Nazarite vow. But interesting. That, that's very interesting, guys. You got you all brought some really interesting thoughts for me to think about. Um, here's an easy question: What is it? Uh, so Paul, um, Paul goes back. He goes to Antioch. And then it says he's going to turn around and leave for Galatia, and he's going to go in order. What does it mean in order? They're going to walk in single file. Yeah. <laughs> Alphabetical, I thought maybe. Anybody have a thought? He's just going to trace his way back to the origin of when he started the journey. Uh, I, I'm guessing that too, Mike, that, it, that yeah. it's talking about the order that he went to those churches before. So he's right. retracting, retracing his steps from yeah. the first time that he went, you know, several, yeah. many years before. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. E either in the same order or in reverse order. Yeah. yeah so. so let's uh, let's jump back to our chat. Um, I'm not seeing we have any answers to our chat question. Um, yeah. So I, I'll just throw it to you guys. The question was, why was Paul in a rush to get to Jerusalem? The answer is. Because. Why did he want to get there quick? Uh, I think he wanted to keep a feast. Probably, yeah. He says, I want to keep a likely feast. he wanted to observe a feast. Yeah. What's kind of interesting, by the way, is is that we're going to see this one more time in Acts chapter yeah. twenty, where he wants to get home quickly to get to a feast. So uh, there are more significance at that time than this one. So the second right. question: right. Right. He says, he to get Jerusalem. Does it right. say he went to Jerusalem? Not in so many words. He what, eventually what got could, there. What could infer that he went to Jerusalem? Well, later we know that he was rested again in Jerusalem. And well, so well, so in verse twenty-two, so so verse twenty-two ends with him getting to Antioch. Um, yeah. Is there anything in that verse that could suggest he went to Jerusalem? So, the, so it says from Caesarea, what did he do? Went down he, to Antioch. It says he went up. Now, from Caesarea, there's only one way you go up, and that's probably to Jerusalem. Yeah. So. So this is one of those times where somebody says, you know, he was in a hurry to get home, but it doesn't say he went to get to Jerusalem. But it sounds like he did in the middle of that verse when it says from Caesarea, he went up and then he went down. So he went mm -hmm. up and down somewhere. And, uh, you know, that uh, that old song, the the great old Duke of York, you know, went up a hill and came down again. So yeah. that's probably the best point out there. Brian, extremely quickly on this, let's point out that, that Paul is a Christian and under the law of Christ but that did not change his right as a Jew to participate in the traditional feast of the Jews and so he's not trying to tie this vow 
to a keeping of the law of Moses versus the law of Christ. He's just keeping a feast that was traditional to nationality of Jews. Uh, Mike, uh, tell me this. That's such a neat comment. Let me just uh, play with that for a second. Could you think of parallels to that today? I, actually, I'm thinking of one. I'll just share with you. Uh, rather sure. Than sure. When I was oh, teaching history, when I was teaching history in school, I used to ask eighth graders, does England celebrate the 4th? Does England have a 4th of July? And they all answered, no. <laughs> so I said they went from the 3rd to the 5th. The, the fact is, we have a right to celebrate the 4th of July, but you can't bind that on England. They're certainly not going to join us in that. This same thing with Paul. It, it was a traditional custom thing for the Jews to do. Paul wanted to enjoy the festivities. I, I think it's a great comment. You know, and I, one of the things I think of is that, you know, the, there are certain holidays in the year that are predominantly Catholic holidays, and yeah. yet lots of Christians celebrate them not as Catholics. And I think that would be a good Correct. example of what probably goes on with Paul and these feasts. He celebrates these feasts, but not as somebody who's who's bound to them. Correct. Correct. So I think of. Yeah. Paul, whatever Paul observed as a Jew, he could observe with the understanding that it had been fulfilled. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And Brian, apparently there's there's one footnote that says there's some manuscripts that don't have the phrase I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. Oh, interesting. Um, now, the, the NU is the is the note there for it. NU omits. Yeah. So I'm trying to see what the then the New American Standard says about that. Uh, oh, that's interesting. So the New American, you know, I didn't even look at the New American Standard, which doesn't even mention that. Um, so uh, I wish I had I looked at both versions there, John. I would have looked smarter like you do, but <laughs> it's a footnote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, John knows how to read footnotes. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, I didn't uh, uh, using. I didn't see that at all. So that's very interesting. It's an observation. That there's some don't mention that going for a piece. So impressive. Um, I think maybe this is a good place for us to stop. Not so much in the term of the break of the text, but in the terms of the story. I know we've been kind of chatting about that amongst ourselves here. Um, I know we have at least one more chat comment to pull in, and so maybe what we'll do is pull it in, and then we'll kind of wrap things up if we can. Uh, I see we have one last comment here by Gregor in the chat. And Gregor's comment was, his intention was to head to Jerusalem for a feast. Uh, if you want to make God laugh, make plans. That's a, uh, <clears throat> you know, that's kind of a re-paraphrasing of, of some of the passages in the Book of Psalms, I think. So that's a very interesting uh, observation there. So I think that this is about where we're going to wrap up so that next time we can start right into Paul's third journey. Uh, let's kind of go around the room for a moment. Do we have any final comments uh, we want to bring up? And I'm going to start with on what's on my screen, and that starts with Tom. Tom, you got anything you want to bring in extra? No, I, I think this has been, been a good study. Like I said, uh, this is a good stopping point. Next next week, we will get into chapter 19. We're not going to spend the whole thing on chapter 18, but this is a good transition point for that. But but it's a good study as always, and, and look forward to now seeing the third journey as it begins. Shelton, in my list, you're next. What do you got? Anything to add? Uh, no, I really appreciated the, you know, the the way that you've led this study it sparked my mind to do a lot of studying i have never done and uh, learned a lot so i appreciate it and uh it was it was good for me uh mike what do you got you got anything to add i'm going to just uh, amen shelton because a young man taught an old dog new tricks on this one <laughs> i had never discussed it or even considered some of the things you brought up in the outline been very helpful and i appreciate it uh, john you got anything you want to throw out there uh, wrap us up with no, I don't think so, Brian. Uh, I appreciate um, your study in this. Are we looking at picking up with verse 24? Uh, I was thinking verse 23, even though we read it, uh, might be a nice place for us to start. Okay. How's that sound? Okay. But, no, we're good. All right. Because um, we'll start right back on this journey next time. So, John, why don't you wrap us up? All righty. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate Brian's efforts with the outline and leading us through our study today. And hopefully, and I believe that you have been benefited by the study. 
Some very interesting points seen within this particular chapter and what we've considered. I thought that was very interesting about the information regarding Gallio and the external proof that was found showing that he did exist and therefore verifying the uh, authenticity of the text seen here in Acts. Now, if you have any questions or comments, don't hesitate to email them to us. Send them to questions at truthfactor.com. Questions at truthfactor.com. Tom, do you have Acts chapter 19 for next week, sir? I do have Acts 19, so we'll, we'll get that at, at, at the very least started. Because, okay. I mean, it's a long chapter, so. All right. So what we'll do then, if everything goes according to plan, or as we like to say, if the Lord wills, we'll continue our study next week in the book of Acts. We'll pick up in verse 23 of chapter 18, and then we will flow on into chapter 19, and Tom will be leading that study. That is next Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. Noon Eastern Time. 9 a.m. Pacific Time. 10 a.m. Mountain Time. That's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.